0: And his one goal in writing was to give you certainty in a world of doubt. Good morning. morning. You guys doing well? Outstanding. Good to have you with us. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 21. We'll cover that whole chapter here this morning. Certainty in a World of Doubt. Title of this weekend's message is, When Hell Breaks Loose. We are racing to the end of the year and racing to the end of this book. We're starting a new teaching series after the first of the year. Also grab your sermon notes out. You'll see part of the intro there. The Bible couldn't be clear that the events leading up to the end of the world and the second coming of Christ will be quite catastrophic. However, there are four primary views on how the end times eschatological events, it's called eschatology, end times, eschatological events will unfold that we can debate, we can debate about these four views but shouldn't divide over them. I gave you a website there you can go to to identify those four views. You can also probably uh, maybe get it on Amazon but it's the four views, end times, it's from Rose Publishing and it does really a good, good job at laying it out kind of showing you how these four views work their way out. Now, most of you probably don't even know what you believe. Most American evangelicalism uh, believe in what is known as dispensational premillennialism. You didn't know that, did you? Uh, The other three views is historical premillennialism, amillennialism, and then postmillennialism. Those all fit within the pale of orthodoxy. And so we're gonna we can debate it. We shouldn't divide over it. But most probably uh, embrace dispensational premillennialism. That's the one that believes the in rapture, uh, seven year tribulation. At the end of that, Jesus comes back, second coming, with all the saints, and sets up his kingdom for a thousand year reign. And it kind of works out that way. The problem with that particular view it's the it's the youngest out of all of the views. It it didn't come into existence. It became popular about 1860, so it's, uh, it's not that old. The other views, historical premillennialism, uh, it's the earliest view of the end times emerging at the end of the first century. Amillennialism, popularized in AD 400, continues to be accepted today, and the least popular is postmillennialism. And that uh, came about about A.D. 300. So it's, it's just an interesting chart you can look at. And uh, we're not going to talk about any of that, okay? I just, I just brought that up so that you could... I'm not going to pin the tail on the Antichrist or tell you when the rapture is going to take place or, or anything like that. We, we're gonna, I'm going to do something that's actually much more important than that. This is one of the most debated sections of Scripture. And so in this study, we will focus on... What we know for sure, is that okay? So we're not gonna get into any speculation. You can speculate all day long. And by the way, let me just say that I was raised uh, in the church and back in the 60s, 70s, particularly 70s and 80s, I read a lot of those end of the world books. And most of those guys that wrote those books, none of that stuff came true. And there there was even a guy that I, I respect even to this day. He's gone on to be with the Lord and he was part of a movement Uh, that's quite popular. I won't even tell you his name, but he even set a date. It was supposed to be in the mid-80s when Jesus was supposed to come back. And guess what? We're still here. And so you need to be careful with date setting and you know, uh, reading the paper in one hand and the Bible in the other and trying to connect the dots and do all that. So what I'm gonna do here is that we're just gonna talk about what we know for sure and how to endure when hell breaks loose. How about that? You guys good with that? You don't have a choice. But... uh, there you go. So, so here's, here's where we're headed. Whether it is the end of the world or the end of your world, whichever one comes first, I want to prepare you for when hell breaks loose because it's just a matter of time. It's just a matter of time. And uh, this is certainly a very relevant message in light of the recent hurricanes Mass shootings in Vegas and Texas and the terrorist attack in New York City. Now, all of us are in one of three categories. We've already maybe had something catastrophic take place in our own personal lives. We've had all hell break loose in our lives. I know a number of people in this church have, have experienced that past tense. Some of you are currently going through things that you would describe as all hell has broken loose in your life. And the third category would be it's a matter of time. It's going to happen. And so you need to be prepared. And here's what's... Uh, um, in most of the books I've read, Americans are the least prepared for uh, catastrophic times. Did you know that? We just don't have a good theology for suffering. Most American churches don't preach a good theology for suffering. We do here consistently and regularly. This is a, I'm going to give you a good, healthy theology for suffering and help to prepare you for that. And so uh, that's where we're headed with our study, so buckle your seatbelts, get ready to unpack this text. What I'm going to do is I'm going to read through the text, comment about it, and then at the end you'll see where the notes are laid out, what do we know for sure, I'll go through a list, and then how to endure when hell breaks loose, that's where we're headed. So let, let's pray, and then we'll dive into our text and these notes. God, we are delighted to be here today, we love your presence. And you never promised us a painless or problem-free life, but you have promised us your power your peace, and most importantly, your presence for those who, by grace through faith, take refuge in Jesus' saving work in their behalf. And so, God, we pray through the study of your, your infallible and inspired word and the work of your Holy Spirit, teach us Teach us what we can know for sure about the end times, about suffering. But most importantly, how we can endure when hell breaks loose in our lives. We pray in Jesus' beautiful name and everyone said, amen. amen. So let me give you a little background before we begin our reading. And, and this is Wednesday. So as we're reading, keep in mind, this is Wednesday, the Wednesday afternoon of Passion Week and in less than 24 hours, Jesus will be de- be betrayed with a kiss and arrested. And in less than 48 hours, he will be hanging on the cross for you and, and me. And so that's the context. And so Luke 21, 1 through 38, this is God's word. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering. And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins and he said, truly I tell you, This poor widow has put in more than all of them, for they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Stop there just for a minute. He's making a contrast between this widow and the religious leaders. If you remember last weekend as we ended that chapter, chapter twenty. I talked about the religious uh, scribes and Pharisees, religious leaders, in Luke 20, 46 through 47. If you have your Bibles open, you can kind of glance back there. Who like to walk around in long robes. He said, he, was, he said, beware of these religious leaders because they like to walk around in long robes, love greetings in the marketplace, the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feast, who devour widows' houses. This is a widow here putting money in the box. So he's making a contrast between them and this widow and, um, who devour widows' houses and for pretense, so he's identifying them, it's all pretense for them, make long prayers, they will receive their condemnation. So he's making that contrast. We'll refer back to that in our notes. Let's continue reading. Verse 5. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said as for these things that you see the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down the temple was one of the was one of the wonders of the ancient world so this had to have shocked them this is going to be leveled is what they're thinking quite spectacular really beautiful And they said, and they asked him, teacher, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, and now by the way, as I've walked through this text, here's the question I was asking myself. So he's talking about catastrophic times. He's talking about end end times. He's talking about his second coming and all these events. And so, what does he say in here that would help to prepare us for those end times? And so, that's what I was looking for. And boy, there was things that popped off the page to me as I was reading through this. And I really believe the Holy Spirit was just really speaking to me very profoundly through this. So, I just begin to underline, okay, so how can I prepare for this? This is a matter of fact. It's going to happen. This is how he's talking about it. So, how, how can I prepare for when hell breaks loose? in my life and so and he said, See that you are not led astray. I underlined that in my in my Bible. I said, okay, that's the first thing. I don't want to be led astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified. I underlined that. Do not be terrified. I don't need to be freaking out about all these things that are happening. That uh North Korea is going to bomb us, or uh, Iran, or Russia, or any of those things. Don't freak out. Don't be terrified. For these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Now, this is the longest answer to any question that Jesus, ever, uh, that Jesus was ever asked. And Mark chapter 13 Matthew 24 and 25 gives us the composite answer. So if you want to know the the fuller answer to, to what he's saying here, you go to Mark 13, Matthew 24 and 25. Now Jesus took the opportunity to answer their question concerning the temple, but he also wanted to set the record straight here. And as bad as the temple destruction would be, which happened about 30 to 40 years after this, 70 AD or AD 70, It would be relatively minor, a relatively minor event compared to the end days or the end of the world. So this prediction has both a near-term fulfillment and a long-term fulfillment. And that was not unusual uh, in prophetic speech. So when you read in the Old Testament, when they make these predictions, there's kind of a short-term and then there would be a long-term fulfillment of those predictions. Pretty common in in Bible prophecy. That's what he's talking about. So he's talking about something that's current, but he's also talking about something that's in the future. Sometimes it's hard to kind of uh, walk through that and understand that. So the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem sacked by the Romans, which I said happened in AD 70, is a foreshadowing of the end of the world. And, And there's something here that I think we can learn before we move on and continue reading. The temple's destruction is also symbolic, Symbolic of what? Well, Jesus is about to hang on the cross. What is this destruction of the temple symbolic of? That Jesus makes temples obsolete. That Jesus is the temple. He's the high priest. He's the holy of holies. He's the ultimate sacrifice for you and I. So the center of our faith and worship is not a place. It's not Jerusalem, but a person. It's Jesus. Make sense? And I think that's, that's a, really an important point here. Now, Verse 10, then he said to them, nation will rise against nation, and uh, kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, and in various places famines and pestilences, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. I underlined that. that. That stood out to me. This will be your opportunity to witness. So when all hell breaks loose in your life, this is an opportunity for you to put on display the beauty and the glory of Christ. Now settle it, therefore, in your minds not to meditate beforehand to answer, For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. So I I think he's talking about his his empowering presence in our lives there. And you will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. I mean, even those that are closest to us are gonna turn against us. And some of you, they will put to death. That's happening even to this very day. I mean, what we have going on here in America is an anomaly, and there's persecution that's happening worldwide against Christians, and it's picking up pace, and so that's, that's certainly coming to pass, and all of this is coming to pass, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But notice this, but he says in verse 18, but not a hair of your head will, be, will perish. Now, wait a minute. Didn't he just say some of us are going to die? And then he says, but not a hair on your head will perish. Does that sound like a contradiction to you? Actually, uh, we'll talk about that. That's really an important point here. This is going to help you with your theology of suffering. And, and by your endurance, so I underlined this verse 18 and verse 19, but not a hair of your head will perish, but your endurance, but by your endurance, you will gain your lives. Now, what he's saying here, by the way, if you look at the stats over the last 200 years, all of this is happening. Every bit of this is happening, and it's picking up pace and... Uh, I'll talk about it in a little bit, but actually Matthew calls it birth pains. You guys know what birth pains are, ladies? And they, what do they do? They increase with intensity and frequency. So what he's saying is this will increase with intensity and frequency as we get closer to the end. So we know that we, we started the end times, end days, started with Jesus' first coming and the end with his second coming. We know that. There's a lot of times saying, what are the end times? We're living in them, okay? They started with his first coming, they end with, this, uh, with the second coming. The Bible's clear about that. But what this is describing here for us is that religious, there's re- going to be religious deception, there's a lot of that, global disaster, got that going on, and believer distress. And we're just getting glimpses of it right now, but we're going to probably see a whole lot more of that. But the rest of the world is already in that. And so look for three things between his first and second coming, deceivers, disasters, and distressors. I think this also tells us something about, uh, about Jesus, about God. Anytime you read the scripture, you want to always ask yourself the question, uh, what does this tell me about God? What is it teaching me about God? And here's what it tells us about God, about Jesus, is that he has foreknowledge, he's a prophet, and he's sovereign. And so, let me explain what I mean by that. He has foreknowledge. He knows the future. I mean, he's just talking about the future like he knows it like the back of his hand. He's just, yeah, this is what's going to happen. This is the way it is. And then, so, foreknowledge. He knows the future. He's a prophet. He tells the future. That's what he's doing. And he's sovereign. He brings the future to pass, which tells us he's in control. This doesn't catch him by surprise. He's not wringing his hands as he's telling his disciples. He's not all stressed out. He's just saying, this is a fact. This is the way things are going to go down. And, And you study this, and you begin to look at the times, and you read the stats, and yes, things are increasing with intensity and frequency like you wouldn't believe. Verse 20, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. They're surrounded by armies right now, but, uh, but he's talking about back in, in those days, that's gonna happen. That happened 70 A.D., but once again, there's a, there's a current understanding of that and there's a future understanding of, of all of this. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let those who are inside the city depart and let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. It's like, ah, this isn't going to be easy for you. Suffering is hard. For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against his, this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And then verse 25, he begins to talk about the... His, his second coming, and there will be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars and on the earth distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then, now I underlined this, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Speaking of that second coming. Now, when these things begin to take place, straighten up, raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. This was a often quoted verse by my mom growing up in our home when we'd see the craziness happening. She would always encourage me with these words and encourage us kids. So she would kind of quote it from the King James. Hey, don't, don't stress out. Lift up your head your redemption is drawing near. She'd, call, she'd say nigh because that's the King James Version. She goes, eh, no big deal. He, he might just take us home early. That'll be great. And so she was kind of, she would always kind of like, oh, it's not that big of a deal. He's in control. He loves us. He's got it covered. In fact, if we think we're going to get nuked, let's get a bag of potato chips <laughs> and a six-pack of soda and get up on the roof and watch the fireworks, Okay. <laughs> And So that was kind of her, her perspective. Is like, whatever. He's, he's got it. He's telling us about it. He's just preparing us. It's no big deal. That's what it's saying. So if you look at this, he says, now, when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads. What, what does he mean by that? Well, typically, if you're without hope, you're kind of slumped and with your head down. You're hopeless. But he's saying, pull your shoulders back. Lift up your head. You have hope. Your hope's in Jesus. Don't get all stressed out. That's what he's saying. No need to get stressed out. So I underline that. that I go, hey, that's, that's some good counsel here. Now, verse 29, and he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. And as soon as they came out in leaf, you see for yourselves and know that summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth, this is another one I underlined here. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Sounds like you better build your life on his word, huh? And not on anything in this world, but on his word. That's, that's, that's the point here. Now, Now, if you believe in... In what is known as dispensational premillennialism, and that's typically kind of where I was taught and leaned, though I've kind of reconsidered some of that through the years. Uh, You will look at a text like this, and this is what this one was taught, was that the the fig tree was Israel, Jerusalem, the Jews, and it began to blossom in 1948, and the generation that sees that, then then that's when he's coming back. How many have heard that uh, interpretation of that? Okay, not, not very many. Uh, and so I'm not sure if I really embrace that because we're running out of time. That generation has already seen that and, and they try to define what is a generation and how long will that be and that's all gonna happen, it's all gonna come down. And, and so some of those books that I read in those early 70s and 80s, <laughs> a lot of the stuff that they said didn't come to pass. And so, and let me also say this, too, is that I had a number of friends that converted to Christianity because they thought the end of the world was coming, and then they didn't, they didn't stay the course. I think that's kind of a poor reason for coming to faith, fear. It should be a heart that's smitten by the beauty and the glory of Christ and your love for Him. So, regardless of what happens, you're going to live for Him. You're not, not, be, not because you think the end is coming, and then it never comes, and then you bail that's, that's messed up. You missed the whole point of what Christianity is about, okay? But I saw that. I don't, I'm not into the whole fear tactics nonsense uh, that, that drives people into Christ. I, I just really believe you need to. Yeah, there's bad stuff happening, but you, you want to come to him for a lot bigger reason. And so that's part of it. Also, it's interesting, that out of all these uh, views, dispensational premillennialism, it's that pre-trib pre, uh, rapture group, unless you believe in mid Trib rapture, you know, and that whole thing. Uh, they're the only ones that believe that you're not gonna, we're not gonna go through the tribulation. The other three views actually believe that Christians will go through the great, the, called the great tribulation. One of the views believes that the tribulation has already been happening. Now, we can debate it. We shouldn't divide over it, but, uh, but it's, it's quite fascinating as you read these and you look at that. And so, um, let me give you my... Uh, my understanding, and I think, it's, I think it's, uh, it goes beyond that, it's much bigger, and, I, and what I think that Jesus is saying with this idea, the lesson of the fig tree, is that there weren't many plants in Israel, and at, at the time, there weren't many plants in Israel at the time that lost their leaves in the winter time, and so the fig tree lost its leaves in the winter and only began to come back in the spring and in the summer, and so I, I believe that what Jesus is saying Is that the most glorious springs and summers? You know, after you've been through a real hard winter, we don't have hard winters. We have beautiful winters here, and so it's not so much for us. But people that are back east, and and some of them have already started their winter here this last week, pretty crazy stuff. That's why I'm glad I live here. But, uh, But when you go through a real hard winter, man, you're longing for spring and summer. And this is what he's saying. The most glorious springs and summers you've ever seen in your entire life are but a dim glimpse of the ultimate spring and summer that I'm going to bring in my second coming when I make this world perfect again after centuries of winter. And I believe that's what he's talking about. He just talked about his second coming. And then he moves from his second coming right into the lessons of the fig tree. Now, he gives us some... uh, more wisdom, some more insight that as I was thinking, okay, so how can I prepare for this stuff? Verse 34, but watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. We'll talk about that. We'll need to unpack that verse, but I underlined watch yourselves. So you need to pay attention to how you're living out this Christian life. Verse 35, for it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth, no one is immune to this catastrophic, uh, the catastrophic events that, that we're going to face. Verse 36, but stay awake, I underline that, but stay awake at all times praying that you may have strength, I underlined that, to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man, to stand before Jesus. And every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. Okay, that's that's chapter 21. I love how we study God's word here. We just covered a whole chapter. Now we're going to unpack it, and we're going to look at two things here: what we know for sure, and how to endure when hell breaks loose. Let's first of all, what. We know for sure. Here's the first thing. It's on your notes. This world will not last. This world will not last. We know that for sure. Okay. Scientists even say that eventually the sun's going to burn up, burn out. Okay. So we know that scientists even say that, but the Bible is very clear about that. So verse nine, verse 28, verse 31, and verse 33 all say that to us. Verse 33 says heaven and earth will pass away. So it's all gonna end. You, you didn't think about that, did you? And you, you? Until you came here today, and it's been a while since you've thought about that. Yes, it's all gonna come to an end. And um, so that's, you gotta keep that in mind. You need to live with the current perspective of eternity. That's healthy. Here's the second one. Things will go from bad to worse. Things will go from bad to worse. Verses 9 through 12, verses 25 and 26... Matthew 24, 8, calls them birth pangs. Remember what I said? Increase with, with frequency and intensity. But here's, here's what I believe. So I believe that things are gonna go from bad to worse. Things are gonna get worse here in America. I mean, can, do you see the trajectory we're on? It's Not a good one. And yet, I believe for believers, things will go from good to great. And I'm not talking circumstances. I'm talking about his presence, his power, and his peace in our life. so that we can endure the tough times and put him on display. I I still believe and I'm praying for the greatest revival we've ever seen on this planet. I I just pray that God will pour his spirit out upon his people unlike they've ever experienced before. And I think during that time, you'll certainly see an influx of of new believers coming in, but you'll see his church lit up unlike ever before and beautified and people will be drawn to him through his people and, and his church and so for that to happen, typically nominal Christians need to get saved, uh, sleepy Christians need to wake up, and the church will be beautified so that hard-to-reach people will be drawn to Christ through the church. That's, that's revival. And I believe that will happen. Let me give you a couple verses here. This is just in, in general. And this is what your life should look like as a Christian as you walk with Christ. Proverbs 4.18, the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, so think of the light of dawn if you're a Christian. So it's, it's kind of coming up. You, can't, you can barely see it. So, it. so the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. That should be your life. If you're walking in vital union and communion with Christ, oh my goodness, His presence, His peace, and His power should become more powerful. Uh, more clear to you, and more relevant to you, and, and more alive to you, and, and more active in your life. And, and I have to say, that's, that's true with me. I'm getting, getting old. My body's falling apart. Hey, don't laugh. Okay, it's because you guys can relate? Yes. So, oh, yeah, you guys are falling apart too. I won't point you out in here, but... Yeah, how many remember me when I had a full head of hair? Not, oh, my cousin back there, yeah. There's not very many of you. It's because I started losing my hair when I was 12, huh? But so I'm falling apart, but I'll tell you what, God's presence, His power, His peace has been more real to me than ever before. So I'm thinking, man, if it's this good, <laughs> Let me read that verse again. This is good. The path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. 2 Corinthians 12, it says, his power is made perfect in weakness. So when it's getting, when all hell breaks loose in your life, praise God, that's an opportunity for God's power to show up and and be so real to you, unlike ever before. That's okay, enough there. Let's continue getting through this, or we'll never finish, okay? So what we know for sure, this world will not last. Things will get... uh, go from bad to worst, but for believers it will go from good to great. And then number three, Jesus will return visibly and personally to judge and restore the world. Verse 27 and 36, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in the cloud with power and great glory. Verse 36, all will stand before the Son of Man. And then number four, no one knows when, no one knows when, But don't be passive or preoccupied, but be prepared. So the tendency is to be passive. I'm not going to worry about that. Or be preoccupied with that. Oh, no, what are we going to do? But be prepared. Now, let me emphasize this this idea that no one knows when. Verse 8, he says, don't be led astray, for many will come in my name, saying, the time is at hand. Do not go after them. Now, Matthew 24, 36 says, no one knows the day or the hour. So, everybody look up here. No one knows the day or the hour. So, stay away from date setters. Don't get all worked up and go, oh, someone just came up with a date. We know when he's coming back. Did you know that every year I hear, hear that? How many have heard that just about every year somebody comes up with a new date, new, new calculation, new? That's garbage. It, what is it saying? Don't be led astray. Don't chase after that. That's He's saying that. Stay away from date setters. Now, let's talk about not being passive or preoccupied, but being prepared. Look at verse 34, but watch yourselves lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation. You guys know what dissipation is? It's hopelessness and drunkenness and cares of this world, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. Now, now let's, let's unpack that verse. That's, a, that's really significant for us. So, the cares of life, how many from time to time, I mean, I do. I get overwhelmed by the cares of life. How many get overwhelmed by the cares of life? Yeah, we all do that. And so what he's saying, cares of life, and what's that, what is that gonna do? It's gonna create hopelessness, dissipation, and then what, what's our natural human instinct? Medication. Drunkenness, woo, I'm gonna, I'm gonna OD. Maybe you don't drink, but maybe you OD on shopping, or, or OD on uh, you know, watching Netflix, or whatever it might be, you, you overdosed on something because you just go, oh man, this is so painful, I'm just gonna chase after this for a season and, and I can escape that. And he's saying cares of this life create hopelessness which we medicate with drunkenness. And then what happens is that then suddenly these things, uh, he says that day comes upon you suddenly like a trap. And I'm not trying to be rude here. And I don't mean to be rude, but from time to time I have people that have catastrophic things happen in their life and they're shocked by it. And I'm thinking, didn't you see that coming? What, are you drunk? Are you intoxicated by this world? And that's what he's talking about here. The cares of this world overwhelm us. We begin to become hopeless. We begin to chase after the things in the world. We lose track of living in light of eternity and then something uh, blindsides us and then we're kind of like, I didn't see that coming. And we freak out and we're overwhelmed. It's like, wait, 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 wait. What this is telling me is that catastrophic times are coming. Bad, there's bad stuff that's gonna happen. And it's not, we don't talk about it. Nobody, many of the churches don't even wanna deal with this. They don't even talk about this. Everything's happy and everything's gonna get better and woo And it's like, no, 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 no. You need to have a good theology for suffering. The Bible gives us a good theology of suffering. I got together not too long ago, it was with Sean Mallory and um, the guy that wrote the book, Mending the Soul. What's his name? Tracy. Tracy. Stephen Tracy. This is what he told me. This is what he told us. He says that uh, Christians and Christian churches in America today do not have a good, healthy theology for suffering. And he said a lot of the churches don't even want him to come in there and talk about mending the soul and some of these tougher issues. Did you know that? That's our that's the condition. We just we want to medicate ourselves, blind eye, we don't even want to look at it. We don't want to deal with it. And then what happens, then it takes us off guard. It it comes upon us suddenly like a trap. So if you want in fact I put it like this internal sobriety precedes external sobriety. Internal sobriety precedes external sobriety. So if you want to get rid of your addictions, drunkenness is secondary to the crisis that's going on in your heart. Your heart will forever be restless until you find your rest in Him. And then you won't be picking up things to try to medicate because you're dealing with the cares of this world and you're taking them to Him. You realize, hey, He's in control. He loves me. He's gonna walk me through this. He's got me covered. He's going to take care of me. And so then there's that peace, and then you're going to be able to navigate through that. You're not taken off guard when, when bad things happen. And you can put him on display through that. Okay, enough there. So let me give you another verse here, verse 36. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place. Stay awake spiritually. What does he mean by that? Live in vital union and communion with Christ and you'll be able to face anything. His greatness and his goodness will be more real than any trial or temptation you'll ever face. So so the cares of this world are not meant to create hopelessness within you and then you begin to medicate yourself. They're meant to push your heart closer to him. He's the cure. He's the solution. So don't go to the... Don't go to the bottle. Don't go to whatever you go to. We all tend to do that. You need to know what you go to, okay? Mine's workaholism and perfectionism and, and eating a big bowl of ice cream at the end of the day and covered with hot chocolate and, you know, you know, just, I, I tend to, I would tend to do that. And, and so there's just different ways that emotional eating and, and different things like that deal with it rather than to use that as an opportunity to go to Christ. And so his unsearchable greatness is bigger, and unimaginable goodness is better than any anything sin offers, any suffering we will ever face. Okay, tough times don't last, tough people do. That's the next point on your notes. That's the idea. Tough times don't last, tough people do. Verse 19. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. Endurance, this is a commitment to follow Christ regardless of your circumstances. If we only follow him during good times, we are not really following him, we are using him. Verse 33, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So how many are familiar with, at the very end of the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus talks about building your life upon either, we're either building our life on the sand or the rock. How many are familiar with that story? So what he's saying, everyone, everybody on this planet is either building their life on sand or rock. Right now, you're either building your life on sand or rock, and not if the storms come into our life, but when the storms, he said it, was very clear, when the storms hit, what happened to the house that was built on the sand? Devastated devastated what about the house that's built on the rock standing strong rock solid now the distinction here is that not that they had both of those had heard God's word but only one began to apply it to their lives it wasn't a matter of whether you heard you can come to church week in and week out and still be building your life on sand you got to begin to take God's word into your life. My wife, I was asked. my wife, I said, so what do you do? How do you prepare yourself for when hell breaks loose? And she's sharp. That's why I married her. I needed that. You know, but uh, she said, uh, no deposit, no return. And I go, huh? She goes, yeah, if you're not investing into your life spiritually, if you're not taking his words and applying them to your life, you're not, you don't have any kind of equity building up. And then when the hard times hit, you have nothing to drop on. You have nothing in your bank account. As you're just going about life and you think you can, you know, skip church and skip reading your Bible and praying and all these things, or you can be doing all those things, but you're not applying those truths to your life. You're not having an encounter with the living God through your spiritual disciplines. But if you are, you're putting equity in the bank. When hard times hit, you're going to have the resources to draw on. Now, so how to do that? How do we do that? How to endure when hell breaks loose? Let me give you some things here this will take us right into communion. So number one, give God all of your heart. Give God all of your heart. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty put in all she had to live on. Remember the story at the very beginning of our reading, verse four? He's making a contrast between this widow And these religious leaders, and we know Matthew 15, 8, Jesus made this very clear. These people worship me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. He was saying, hey, these guys, they're just going through the motions, but she really has a heart towards God, is what he was saying. In verse 22, 37 of Matthew Matthew 22, 37, love God with all of your heart. So you can, what he's saying here is that you can give without loving. That's that's what the Pharisees were doing. They were giving, but they didn't really love God. They were just going through the motions. It was all pretense, but you can't love without giving. If you love, you're gonna give, but you're gonna give more than just money. You're gonna give your heart to God. C.S. Lewis put it this way. God doesn't want anything from us. He just wants us. So here's what I think that this teaches us. You want to prepare yourself for when hell breaks loose in your life? Make him the love of your life. Make him the love of your life. How do you come to terms with someone who has given his life completely for you? He has. Well, you give your life completely for him, you make him the love of your life. I think it also means something a little bit more, especially as you go through catastrophic times, is that uh, I think he's talking about something. uh, Giving your heart to him means this. I I love the Psalms, the prayer book of the Bible, because it's so raw with emotion. And it it is filled filled with uncensored prayer straight from the heart. It gives us permission. Whatever you're feeling in times of suffering, it's okay. Whether it's anger or shock or rage or numbness, or not feeling anything at all—it's all okay. And so, making God the love of your heart, the love of your life, giving Him your heart, your whole heart—is bringing your anger and your shock and your rage and your numbness to God as your refuge, and not and not stuffing it or venting it in an unhealthy way, or doling those emotions with amusements and distractions that promise but can never deliver deliver what we need. But but giving them to God and maybe even sharing them in your small group with others. That's a good healthy place to share those those feelings when you're devastated and you're grieving and you're knocked sideways by suffering and you need a place. That's why I love the Psalms. So it is letting God meet you right where you are and working the truth of God, who God is and what he's done for you through prayer and meditation down until it affects your heart and fills you with his presence, power, and peace. So he meets us right where we are. Give Him your heart. When you go through crisis, whatever you're going through, tell Him. Get around a few close friends that you can trust and tell them what's going on. And let Christ meet you right there. Oh, my goodness. I've seen Him do it a lot of times in my life. I've seen Him do it a lot of times in the people's lives here. I've had that front row seat to watch people that are going through crisis and have watch God meet them right there as they open their heart to him. And he becomes more real to them. His presence, his power, his peace, more real to them than the crisis that they're facing and that they're struggling with. And there's that sorrowful, and yet there's that rejoicing happening simultaneously. Here's the next one, don't be led astray. So you not only give your heart, but you wanna guard your heart, verse eight. And he said, see that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand, do not go after them. The cross-reference I put here, I think, is really a good one, it's been uh, helpful for me. And uh, for many years, 2 Corinthians eleven three. Paul says, but I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, that somehow your heart's minds may be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. He says, so you need to guard your heart. That somehow you may be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Sincere means, what's the opposite of sincere? It means pretense. You're just going through the motions. You're just coming to church and checking the box. You're not encountering Christ. He says, man, you need to guard against that. When we sang those songs earlier, that was a great song list that we did. And he's going to, uh, Josh is going to come up and do a song for us during communion That's just, it's outstanding. When he sent it to me and I listened to it, and I've listened to it a number of times, it's, it's brought tears to my eyes. It was truly an, a, an opportunity to encounter God. And so that, when we get together, are you encountering God? When you read your Bible, when you pray, are you having an encounter with the living God? Or is it just pretense? You need to guard yourself against pretense against being, just going through the motions. Lest our our hearts be led astray from our sincere and pure. Pure means that there's competing loves in your life. No idolatry, devotion to Christ. Your passion for Christ is your spiritual thermometer. So let me ask you, how's your passion for Christ? See, your best defense is a good offense. Sin is what you do when you're not satisfied with God. So, disordered loves, loves out of order, is at the root of all of our problems. We start loving anything more than we love him. That's what he's saying. Guard your heart against that. Then you're going to be taken out when when all hell breaks loose if you don't. See, if you love anything more than God, you will crush it under the weight of your unrealistic expectations, and it will eventually break your heart. Let me give you a quick example, and then we'll move on. If you love... If your spouse's love is more important to you than God's love, you'll be too angry when your spouse fails to give you the support and affection you need and you'll be too afraid of your spouse's anger and displeasure to tell the truth. I did that for years in my marriage relationship but it wasn't until I began to love God the most I loved my wife the best. It's when we love God the most we love others in a healthy way. Don't be surprised by suffering. Let's talk a little bit more about this theology of suffering. God is in control. Don't be surprised by suffering. God is in control. Verse 9, and when you hear of wars and tumults, that word tumults means instability, a state of disorder, disturbance, confusion. Do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. And he's talking like, this is to be expected, living, living in a fallen world that is coming to an end. Verse 12, but before all this, they will lay, your, lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my namesake. Verse 16, you will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you will be put to death. Verse 17, you will be hated by all for my namesake. That shouldn't surprise us that people hate us. He told us they would, but not a hair on your head will, be, will perish. What, so what's, what about this? Does this sound like a contradiction? You're going to be put to death. Some are going to be put to get death, and yet at the same time, not a hair on your head will perish. What is he talking about there? Yeah, I think so. I think he's talking about that, but I think he's talking about even something, even much more than that. I think he's talking about his sovereignty, and he's using this as an analogy, hair on our head. The details of our life? He cares about the details of my life? And he's in control of the details of my life? And nothing happens to me apart from from being father filtered through his hands? In, in, In other words, so he knows, he cares, he rules is what it's telling me. He knows about the details of my life. And he cares about the details of my life. And he's in control of the details of my life. And so those those things happen to us that sometimes it takes us off guard. It doesn't take God off guard. By the way, the, the, the problems that we have, all human problems are symptoms and our rebellion and separation from God is the cause. And so who created this mess that we're in? Not God. We did. And yet he enters into our mess and uses this mess for our good and his glory. That's what it's telling me. That he's going to work for my good and his glory. Nothing will happen to me outside of his loving, wise control. Whether I can understand it or not. Let me give you a couple verses. John 16, 33. Jesus told his disciples. This is part of the upper room discourse just before he's going to be hanging on the cross. He told his disciples, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. You're gonna get the daylights beat out of you is what he's saying. That's what he's saying. But take heart, I have overcome the world. The context of this is the work of the Holy Spirit and the fact that your sorrow will turn to joy. Let me give you another verse. 1 Peter 4, 12 through 13. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. Though something strange were happening to you. Why is this happening to me? I lived a good life. I served God, I don't deserve this. Wait a minute, he just he says in the Bible, it's gonna happen, don't be surprised. It's gonna happen, don't be surprised. But notice what he says, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Now everybody look up here. Jesus didn't suffer so that we wouldn't suffer but that when we suffer, we would suffer well and we would put Him on display in our suffering. That's the Bible. That's the Bible. I love what Augustine says, In my deepest wound, I saw your glory, and it dazzled me. Now, turn to the person next to you real quick. We're almost finished up here. Turn to the person next to you and see if what is the evidence in my life that I, I don't believe that he's in control and I'm trying to play, I'm trying to play God and trying to be in control of my life. What would be evidence in my life that I'm not trusting his control of my life, but I'm trying to take control? And I'm, What would that look like? Real quick, see if, if, if they have an answer to that. What would that look like in your life? So here's, here's two that I'll give you. Evidence, I'm, I'm not trusting God's control, not trusting God's loving, wise control of my life is, is inordinate worry and bitterness. Worry and bitterness, or anxiety and anger. Anxiety and anger. That I'm not resting in him. Anxiety and anger. Worry is believing that God is going to get it wrong. Bitterness is believing that God did get it wrong. And because he is in control, because he is in control, my plans have a limit, my problems have a purpose, my prayer has impact, and my perspective better be by faith and not by sight, because there's a ton of things that aren't going to make any sense this side of eternity. And the Bible says that over and over again. I love Genesis fifty twenty. Genesis 50-20 is the Romans eight twenty eight of the Old Testament. And it basically says, and I know that when people are kind of getting through the difficulties and they can look back and they realize that they're a trophy of God's grace, when they can look their perpetrators in the eyes and look at suffering in the eyes, whoever their perpetrator is, even if it's uh, suffering, They can say, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good for what is now being done, the saving of many lives. That's what Joseph said to his brothers who sold him into slavery, and years later as he's looking back on that, he goes, hey, you know what, I'm not angry. This was all part of God's plan, and God is using this powerfully now in my life and also to touch a lot of people's lives through the events that I've gone through. Second Corinthians 12, nine, his power is made perfect in weakness. Through suffering, he is weaning us from ourselves and the temporal unto his grace and the eternal. Here we go, last one. Live for his glory, empowered by his presence, filled with his joy. And we see that in verse 13, this will be your opportunity to bear witness. If your purpose in life is to glorify God by enjoying him forever, then that is especially true in suffering. And then in verse 14, he talks about, don't stress out about what you need to say. My presence, his empowering presence will be there. Verse 28, he says, remember those words when he said, when you see these things take place, straighten up, raise up your heads because your redemption is drawing nigh. This is all according to God's plan and his plan cannot be thwarted. And not only will all efforts to rebel or defeat God in the end only fulfill God's plan, but they will only make the ultimate joy and glory of God and his people through Christ's second coming that much greater. Quick story, and then we're going to prepare for communion here this morning. I, uh, I like football. I like watching football. I don't like how my team's doing currently. They didn't do so well this last Thursday night, okay? Okay. And, uh, but a few years ago when they were doing better, and I still do it, I, I DVR the games, because the games are way too long to sit and watch for three to four hours, so if I DVR the game, I can watch it in about an hour, okay? And save a lot of time, don't have to go through a bunch of crazy commercials and all that other stuff. And so a number of years ago, it was kind of, they were heading into the playoffs, they were really doing quite well, and I knew it was a tough game, and so I dvr it, and I was careful to t- make sure nobody told me the to score, but somebody slipped out and told me the to score. So I unfriended them on Facebook. <laughs> and, um, and anyway, I knew the score. I knew the end of the game. I knew that my team won. And though it took some of the excitement out of the game, but it, it ridded me. It got rid of the anxiety and the frustration in watching the game. Because in the, in the game, sometimes it's, there's a lot of anxiety and there's frustration. Like, what the heck? What are well, who called that play? That's the stupidest play I've ever seen in my life. These guys are going to lose if they keep playing like that. Well, I already knew they were going to win. So it got rid of all the frustration and the the anxiety. This is what I wrote on my notes here as it relates to that. When you know that your team is going to win the game before the game is over, you're not uptight and nervous. You just enjoy the game. In Christ, we are on the winning team. We are on the winning team. Praise God. Praise God. So let's celebrate that through communion. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. So Father God, as we prepare our hearts for communion, I know for some this study has been uh, has not been an academic study but has been very personal. It's been very personal because hell has broken loose in their lives and I pray that you would make yourself real to them through communion. The Psalm 147, three through four would become so real to them that they would know that the one who names the numbers of the stars can heal their broken heart and bind up their wounds. I pray for all of us that That gospel logic would resonate deep in our hearts that if God is for us, who can be against us? That because you did not spare your own son, if you took care of our worst problem, you're gonna take care of all of our other lesser problems and we can trust in you in that. So God, we give you all of our heart, help us not to be led astray, but to keep our devotion to you sincere and pure. May we not be surprised by suffering, remembering that that we can trust your loving, wise control of our lives, and may may we live for your glory, empowered by your love, filled with your joy. In Jesus' beautiful name, and everyone said, Amen. amen. We got three stations.